0: Let us pray. O Lord our God, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Give us grace to receive your truth in faith and love, that we may be obedient to your will and live always for your glory, through Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen. Today our scripture lessons comes from Joshua 24, 1-3a, and then down to 14 through 25. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summons the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your ancestors, Terah and his son Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates and served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. Now, therefore, revere the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your ancestors served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Now, if you are willing to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your ancestors served in the region beyond the river are the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, "Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our ancestors up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of Savior, and who did those great signs in our sight. He protected us along all the way that we went, and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign guards, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witness against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. The people said to Joshua, the Lord, our God, we will serve and him we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made statues and ordinance for them at Shechem. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Our gospel lesson this morning comes from the 25th chapter of Matthew, verses 1 through 13. These are the words of Jesus as he teaches the people. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like this. Ten bridesmaids took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, all of them became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a shout. Look, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And then all those bridesmaids got up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise replied, No, there will not be enough for you and for us. You had better go to the dealers and buy some for yourselves." And while they went to buy it, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him into the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the other bridesmaids came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he replied, Truly I tell you, I do not know you. Keep awake, therefore. For you know neither the day nor the hour. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I will confess to all of you that for pastors, weddings can be tricky. Now most of the time they are joyful and fun, but they are also fraught with peril. We know as ministers that we can kind of mess them up. And every time I go into a wedding, I am very much aware of an important truth. A minister cannot win a wedding, but boy, can we lose one. In other words, if we do well, then we are kind of in the background. If we get remembered, however, that is probably not a great thing. In fact, I have a theory on this that in all but the rarest cases, there are really only three people who could win a wedding. Now, the first is the groom, but who are we kidding? He is a dark horse at best. If he has any brains at all, he knows that this is one of those days when he should keep his head down and do exactly as he is told. Now, the bride, she can obviously win it. All we really need to think about is the fact that Everyone stands up and basically bows when the bride enters the sanctuary. So we have to say that the bride, she definitely has a shot to win this day. But let us not count out the third contender, the mother of the bride. Now, she may not be standing up on the chancel, But chances are she is the master orchestrator. She's the set designer, she's the music director, she's the choreographer, she's the producer of the show, and it might be the bride's special day, but the minute the bride leaves on her honeymoon, it is the mother of the bride who stays behind, hopefully to bask in the success of a beautiful, joyful, and well-organized event. So except for these three main contenders, I would offer that all of the rest of us, everybody else, we're just trying not to get noticed very much. And a great cautionary tale in this regard is a legend that still lives on in the annals of my home church. It happened back in the 1990s when Michael Jordan was a megastar, especially in North Carolina. And the wedding party was full of Tar Heels, recent graduates of the University of North Carolina who were loving how their favorite alum was lighting up the NBA. And that's probably why one of the groomsmen thought it would be really funny to bring out a life-size cutout of Michael Jordan and to stand him up in the front of the church with the rest of the wedding party, right in the middle of the wedding, right as the bride and groom were saying their vows. And everybody thought it was hilarious. Everyone except, you guessed it, the mother of the bride. She was furious, and she never forgave that groomsman. His current whereabouts are unknown. But another thing we ministers know about weddings, it's that there will be most likely a lot of sitting around and a lot of waiting. Now, you do not want to be late as the minister. You do not want the wedding director going up to the mother of the bride and asking, hey, have you seen the minister? These are ways to lose a wedding. So we get there early, we make sure we are dressed, and then we sit down in full view and wait. And that is what these ten bridesmaids were doing. At least that is what they were supposed to be doing. In those days, Jewish weddings were usually evening affairs. Guests would start out in the house of the bride where the celebrating began. Periodically, the suspense would build with uh, called out announcement that the bridegroom was either leaving or on his way or, as we heard in the scripture, almost there. Now, his, his friends in attendance would be escorting him by candlelight and lamplight, and once the groom had arrived to find his bride, the whole assembly would turn and follow the couple back to the house of the groom where the marriage ceremony would take place and the full celebration would begin. Coming and going as the party moved, oil for the lamps was a must. In other words, if these ten bridesmaids did their job well, they probably would not have been noticed much. And half of them did just that. Five of them, the wise ones, put extra flasks of oil In their pockets or pocketbooks or whatever they used to carry things around back in those days, and they went happily along with the wedding party. The other five were not ready. They took no extra oil. And sure enough, as they waited and waited and waited for the groom to arrive, the flames in their lamps began to flicker and die. Those who were prepared refilled their lamps, just as the crier began to shout, the bridegroom is near, everyone get ready. But the foolish bridesmaids, to use the words of the parable, the ones who had not come prepared, had to rush out into the night and try to find someone at that late hour to sell them more oil. And while they were gone, the celebration came, And the celebration went, it marched off into the night, leaving them behind, and it shut the door, leaving them alone in the darkness. From the very beginning, Christians who have tried to understand this parable of Jesus have rightly focused on one detail, and that is the oil. As disciples, we know the old adage holds true for us that when it comes to following Jesus, we are always a bridesmaid and never a bride. The collective of the church, the universal church, is the bride, and we participate in that. But as individuals, we are just trying to come along. We know where we fit into this story, and we also have the sense that it all comes down to the oil. Because the oil is what distinguishes the wise bridesmaids from the foolish bridesmaids. Some of them have plenty of oil in their lamps and extra to spare. Others run out just when they need it the most. It is all about the oil. And that is why 1,600 years ago, St. Augustine of Hippo focused one of his most memorable sermons on the oil. What is it, he wondered aloud? Some great, no, some exceedingly great thing does this oil signify. So as we today think about the oil, one thing that we might say Is that the oil could represent work. Leading up to a wedding, the bridesmaids clearly do a lot of work. They help the family with advice and service. They make travel arrangements. They fill gift bags. They sample cakes and vet DJs. They judge dresses and help to choose fabric patterns. They serve as pro bono counselors and cheerleaders. They run interference on family conflicts. They provide free labor for showers and for parties. It's a lot of work to be a bridesmaid. As New Testament scholar Eugene Boring argues, every disciple is given work to do. Things that Boring calls, and I quote, responsible deeds of discipleship. So the image of a bridesmaid translated into our calling as disciples translates into works, works of love, works of compassion, works of mercy and care. If we do these things, we hope that we help to keep our flasks filled with oil so that our lamps will continue to burn. Jesus said it himself in the Sermon on the Mount, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Part of being a wise and responsible bridesmaid for Christ, being a wise and responsible disciple, is about working hard at the things that God calls us to do to feed the poor, to care for the sick, to bind up the brokenhearted, to seek justice, to care for the widow and the orphan and the alien in our midst. But I think it's important to say that hard work was not the answer that St. Augustine offered. The oil had to be more than that. Lots of people work hard. But precious few work at the right tasks. Precious few work in the right way, with the right demeanor. Precious few seek the right ends, with righteous means, with grace and peace and diligence. No, the oil has to be something else, or at least something more. What is it, Augustine asked, looking to the heavens, some great, some exceedingly great thing does this oil signify. Then he turned back to his congregation and he offered the answer that God had given to him. Do you think, he told that congregation, that it is not love? What else could it be other than love and charity? Knowing the bridegroom, knowing who he was and is, knowing how he lived and what he said and where he said he was going, how could the oil be anything other than love? And if we couldn't see that, Augustine pointed out in his sermon the physical realities of oil. Pour in water, he continued, Pour oil upon it, and the oil will swim above. You can do this experiment yourself. Pour some oil into a glass of water and watch what happens. The oil will rise, just like cream rises to the top of the milk. Love, Augustine says, is always the pinnacle. It is always the goal. It is always the end and the means and the way and the truth and the life. Love always rises to the top. And the kind of love that Augustine was talking about, the kind of love that Jesus is talking about, is not an emotion only. It's not just something we feel. This kind of love is very much a verb. It is something we do. It is an act. It is a decision. It is a commitment to live a certain way and to eschew certain ways of living. It encompasses the full ethic of 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul's ode to love. And if we read that passage and we think we can live a life of that kind of love without a lot of hard work, then I fear that the wedding procession will leave without us. That we will be one of the hapless bridesmaids who never really understood what it meant to prepare for the bridegroom, to be ready to keep our lamps lit, and to remain awake Because Scripture says we will not know the day, we will not know the hour when Jesus, the bridegroom, will come and say to us, it is time to go, is your lamp full? Are you ready to walk with me in faith and in love? If we miss the fact that it's all about the oil, which means it's all about the love the blessing of love and the work of love, then the celebration may just leave without us. And that is certainly not God's will for us. God wants us to come along. God wants us to participate fully in the joy of the wedding feast, in the joy of God's reign. So may God give us the wisdom and the will to do the best we can to keep our lamps lit, to keep our stores of love full and ready to the glory of Christ our Lord and to his church, the Bride of Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.